immersive audio podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. This episode is sponsored by Spatial, the immersive audio software that gives a new dimension to sound. Spatial gives creators the tools to create interactive soundscapes using our powerful 3D offering tool. The software modernizes traditional channel-based audio by rethinking how we hear and feel immersive experiences anywhere. To find out more, go to www.spatiallink.com. Hello and welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, episode 71, with me, your host, Oliver Cadell. My guest today, Matt Neutra. Matt creates unique prototype experiences that are used as stepping stones for production-ready experiences for retail and beyond. Since 2005, he has been responsible for product demonstrations that make their way to retail locations around the world. Matt's primary responsibilities include the oversight and development of the diverse tools and workflows used to create world-class sensory experiences. Matt's caused the earth for the tools that will enable the impossible. When the tools don't exist, they have to be created. Matt often has to manage external vendors to define and create these new tools. Matt's goal in life is to never be the smartest person in the room, question everything in pursuit of deeper understanding and get work done with joy and enthusiasm. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Oliver, thanks for having me back again. It's been a minute. It's an absolute pleasure to have you back. Tell us what you've been up to since we spoke last time. So in March, I left Bose after 20 years of um, working on some pretty interesting things, including spatial audio, which we spoke up about um, back in 2018. And 24 days later, I started a new job at a company called BrightSign in Los Gatos, California. Uh, BrightSign is the world leader in digital signage, and they create hardware and software that enables immersive experiences of all kinds. So any Bose display in the world that's running is running on a BrightSign box. Every GoPro display in the world is running on a BrightSign box. Um, Sonos displays, pretty much any retail experience that you see is very likely running on a bright sign box. It's a piece of hardware that is a solid state device with tons of IO, lots of gazintas and gazautas, and it is able to render audio, video, and stills. It can synchronize with other bright sign boxes, and it has spatial audio built into it, which of course is near and dear to my heart. And I've been working with BrightSign as a customer when I was at Bose for since basically 2005. It was actually Roku before it was BrightSign. And now I'm the senior product manager for the authoring environment called BrightAuthor for uh, BrightSign, which is great. It's a tool that I helped to design when I was at Bose. And now I am ultimately responsible for its function and the way it meets customer needs. So that's what I've been up to for the last six months, transitioning to this new um, this new position after being at Bose for 20 years. 
We did a quick demo just before we start recording, uh, and I was really impressed by the functionality. I certainly wasn't expecting so many features and possibilities just based on kind of initial description of the product. Do you mind just giving us a couple of practical examples of what's actually possible? Maybe we can talk about some real case scenarios that you've come across so far. Yeah, absolutely. So the bright sign box can take any input into the box. So a serial connection, a network message, a physical button connection, a USB device connection. So things like um, pressure sensors or proximity sensors or button panels or touch screens or any kind of input device, um, whether it be a virtual input device like a, you know, a, a detector of some kind or a physical device like a button can drive events in this in this box. It also has all kinds of outputs. So it has um, USB output, audio outputs of all kinds, Ethernet inputs and outputs, and also HDMI um, inputs and outputs. And so you can control audio, video, and stills in conjunction with things in the physical world, like DMX lighting or the serial control of things. So you could, in reality build a demonstration that has lights and sounds and is running a blender or turning on and off lights or doing just about anything. So it really lends itself to um, very complex, immersive experiences. It can also be used in the most simplest way, which is as a digital signage device, meaning it is delivering audio and video to a screen. So think about a menu screen in a restaurant, you can see a lot of digital menu screens in, say, McDonald's or, you know, a coffee shop or any other kind of um, retail environment where you're displaying information on a screen. BrightSign is well suited to those simple applications as well. But the thing that makes it really unique is that it runs the gambit of these simple experiences like digital signage, traditional digital digital signage, to these really complex experiences like a Disney-like experience. Um when I was at Bose, all of the Bose stores ran off of a bright sign box. So in, in the Bose store, there was a theater that had audio and video show where lights were controlled and physical objects were, you know, moved with mechanical devices. All of that was run off of a single bright sign box. And the authoring environment, which is a no-code authoring environment, in other words, it's a drag-and-drop environment for connecting states like video or audio or things like that, and events. Mm -hmm. Events being, you know, you press a button and something happens. And so this model of state and event um, authoring makes it really easy for mere mortals like me to create incredibly immersive, complex experiences, or even just immersive, simple experiences. And it's all networks. So these boxes live on a network. They can also stand alone off of a network, but when they are networked, they can be synchronized remotely. They can be published to remotely. You can check their status remotely. So when I was working for Bose, I could check the what was actually playing on the screen in the door of the store in Dubai and change the content from my phone, which is a really powerful thing. So it's sort of... Uh, a bridge between the digital world and the physical world. So you go from, from bits to atoms very easily using this technology. 
I had this uh, a bit of epiphany when we were talking earlier that I was in need for such device on multiple occasions in in past years, and uh, the solution always ended up being very bulky and complicated, consisting of multiple hardware devices and software. And um, it's, it's brilliant to find out that such things exist. Uh, I wish I knew sooner. The BrightSign box has been my secret weapon for the last 12 years. Someone will come to me and say, oh, we need to do some immersive experience for the Tokyo Motor Show. And I would ask them to describe the experience they're trying to create. And I'd nod my head and then I'd go away and I would build it using BrightAuthor and the BrightSign box. Now, the, the one of the more impressive things I've seen um, uh, a guy I know in Dubai, Ibrahim Bakrani, built this video wall in the Dubai Mall that is 840 4K screens all synchronized to create a giant video wall. And he's synchronizing all of these things. It's, it's run off bright sign boxes. And so there's 840 bright sign boxes all synchronized on a network working in tandem to create this massive canvas to, to, to paint with pixels. And that's, um, What's so unique about this technology, and it's kind of a secret weapon for a lot of people. It's um, something that you're probably going to see more of in the in the not too distant future as people get more into physical world immersive experiences like the immersive Van Gogh experience that's going around or the immersive King Tut experience that National Geographic is putting on. Those kinds of experiences are perfect for that kind of technology. And spatial audio plays into it as well, which we can get into. Yeah, if you are someone who is creating a retail experience or a physical world experience, whether it be um, an immersive storytelling kind of thing, like in a museum or an immersive storytelling experience, like with some of these location-based experience companies that are doing things like Immersive Van Gogh, you should really be paying attention to the digital signage world. And, you know, BrightSign's the world leader in this, and they have been for a long time. And the thing that's unique about their approach is that the hardware is a platform and the software that runs that platform is absolutely bulletproof. Now, you can cobble together an experience with a computer and all kinds of accessories and you can duct tape it all together and make it work, but it's so hard to do that at scale. And that's one of the the reasons that BrightSign exists is to create these experiences at scale. You know, when I was at Bose, we would deploy displays by the 10,000s. So we would build a prototype, get it to work, create the experience that we wanted to create, create a blueprint, and then send it off to a display house to, to replicate that. And that there's the scale there where you can take this, this thing that was a prototype, battle harden it, and then send it to somebody to produce at scale, and they would send out 10,000 of these displays. So if you're in the immersive space and you want to do something at scale or you want to do something that is low maintenance, in other words, you deploy it and you don't have to touch it again and you can remotely control it, then BrightSign technology is perfect for that job because it's so flexible and it's so scalable and it's actually really affordable which is kind of the amazing thing. The fact that you can do this with a box that, you know, the the, the, the least expensive box that BrightSign sells is just under $300. To be able to do that is kind of amazing. And actually, 
I was at my girlfriend's house a couple of um, weeks ago and across the street, somebody was doing this weird projection mapping thing. And I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. I've got to go over and check this out. So I walked across the street and I saw, and I talked to the, this couple who was doing this immersive experience, projection experience with two projectors to tell the story of this church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And they were using two laptops. And I kind of laughed and I said, you know, can I ask you what you're doing? And they explained it to me. And then um, I said, you know, what are you doing in the backyard here? It's like, oh, we're trying to figure out how to how to do this because we have to do this for a month, every night for a month from October to November. And we're using these two laptops, but we're having trouble synchronizing them. And I said, wow, that's really kind of ironic that this is the problem you're having right across the street from me um, because I work for a company called BrightSign that builds boxes to do this job. And so I volunteered to loan them two BrightSign boxes and volunteered to author the experience for them. So I went home that night. They sent me the videos. I authored the experience, synchronized the two things, and then handed it off to them. And they ran this thing in Cambridge for a month, essentially, on these two boxes. Um, That's how easy it is. And so it's funny that not everybody knows about this technology. Um, but more people will know about it and and that will play out as people do more immersive experiences or or do more in the world digital physical experiences. Wow, that's a that's an incredible story, a true ambassador. Um uh speaking of uh, affordability, I, I agree it uh, seems uh seems very affordable considering how much value you get out of this product. Can I ask about the the programming environment that comes with it? Does it come for free if you buy if you purchase a device or a number of devices, or do you have to subscribe to to access that further functionality on the software side of things? Well, the great thing is that the authoring environment is free, and you don't even need to buy a BrightSign box to download it and try it out. If you go to BrightSign.biz and navigate through the website to the uh, BrightAuthor Connected. You can download the application for Mac or PC. You can even run it on the web, which is amazing, which means that anywhere you are in the world, you can author an experience and push it to the cloud. Now, the authoring environment is free, but if you buy a, a BrightSign box, it automatically comes with um, something called Control Cloud, which lets you see the box on the network for free. But if you want to push content to the cloud, you have to subscribe per box to something called Content Cloud. It's about $100 per box per year, which is incredibly reasonable if you think about it, to be able to deploy a digital sign and for $100 a year be able to send content to it remotely. Um, you really can't find something at that price. And it's it makes it very accessible to, to just about anybody if they want to remotely control an experience. But the, the authoring environment is free and it's super usable. And now that I'm the product manager for it, I'm going to make it a lot more usable because that's my mission. And it's also my passion, being able to create tools for people to express um, story through technology has always been my thing. You know, when I was at Bose, you and I talked about this. Um, now that I'm at BrightSign, that is my my sole purpose for being there is to make this authoring environment be the most usable, the most flexible, the most powerful tool for expert users and consumer users alike. Yeah, the, the pricing certainly pales to comparison 
compared to 800 AK screens in Dubai. I can't, I can't imagine the the value of that project. The interesting thing is that can, that's I think done on a local network, so that doesn't cost them anything to do that. Um, you know, the prices of the devices is reasonable, and then you know, the, the it's it's a they they were using a previous technology that I won't mention. They were using another technology before they switched over to BrightSign. And it was a nightmare. It was a bunch of PCs that had to be synchronized and they were always updating themselves and doing all this stuff. And when they switched over to BrightSign, it's just radio silence. It was just nothing but pure experience delivered. And it just works and it runs forever and it's solid state and it's a closed loop system. So it's not going to randomly update itself and put weird messages on the screen. It just, it's, it, it's a purpose built system, but it's so flexible. And so, um, and, you know, the spatial audio part of it, you know, it supports Dolby, all Dolby formats. It can pass through Dolby formats. If you pay a license fee, you can actually decode Dolby on these devices. And that's what I was doing at Bose was taking advantage of that capability to do all kinds of really interesting things. I did one project where I synchronized about 20 of these BrightSign boxes and decoded 5.1 on each one of them. So I could basically take a 20 piece orchestra and have a synchronized orchestration across multiple speakers. And all of it was made possible by this very flexible authoring environment. We'll make sure to include all the relevant links and information in our podcast show notes. And if you do have any questions or ideas, uh, make sure to get in touch with Matt and discuss. Our hot topic today is spatial audio for consumer products and services. And obviously that's your expertise, Matt. You've been closely following the progress of spatial audio, making into all kinds of everyday products and services. Can you give us an overview of what happened in the last couple of years? Yeah, so in the last couple of years, a lot has happened. Um, and, you know, in the when we were talking about this before hitting the record button here, we were talking about this progression from elite creator to prosumer creator to consumer creator. And that's something that continues to play out in the tools for creators, whether it be for desktop publishing or video editing or audio editing. The tools always migrate from elite creator to prosumer creator to consumer creator. And in that progression, the population goes from being very small, you know, very small population of elite creators who are willing to suffer through the use of very complex tools to a slightly larger population of people who are willing to use off-the-shelf consumer tools to then highly accessible tools for people to create, really for anybody to create. So I'll give a couple of examples of that progression, and, and this will play into our conversation. Desktop publishing. You used to have to be a graphic designer. You used to have to know about fonts and layout and paste up. And you would physically lay out a design. Then you would have to know about the printer and how to make sure the colors transfer properly. And then you had to know about publishing and binding and all these other skills. So being a graphic designer was a really complex thing. There were elite creators called graphic designers who would create magazines and books and, and other physical designs. That was the elite creator stage of that creative pursuit. Fast forward to the introdu introduction of the Mac. With the introduction of the Mac, photography became accessible on a computer. 
page layout became accessible with Quark Express and InDesign. The laser printer made it possible to print your own stuff. And so that became sort of the prosumer thing. And graphic design changed as an industry to be this computer-based thing. Fast forward to today, on my iPhone, using pages or any other application, I can do graphic design and print layout and print to a color printer. And so that's the progression. Elite creator, prosumer creator, consumer creator. Same thing with audio editing and video editing. With video editing, you used to have to have a studio and tape machines and all kinds of knowledge. You had to know about drop frame and frame rate and aspect ratio and all these other things. And then fast forward to, again, the the Mac and computer-based video editing, thanks to George Lucas and, and ILM. You could then, on a reasonably affordable computer, do video editing. You still had to know a lot, but now I have a 4K camera on my iPhone and I can edit on my iPhone and I can deliver on YouTube. And, you know, you as a spatial audio creator have seen this progression too. I mean, you and I had an interaction maybe, what was it, a year ago when you finished your uh, Harry Shata album, when you were trying to figure out how to do head tracking and Mm -hmm. you sent me the files, I converted them to... Bose AR, I sent you a pair of headphones and you were able to do it. So that was sort of this elite creator spatial audio moment. And then fast forward a year later, Apple released Dolby Atmos and Logic. And I was at the time working on a, a, a mobile app to do spatial audio recording with a, a headphone whose brand I won't mention, <laughs> you can guess, mm-hmm. where, where you could record spatial audio from the headphones edit it on your mobile device, and then transmit it with spatial head tracking audio to devices. This is where we're headed now. So we're kind of in the prosumer space right now for spatial audio with Logic and uh, Sony 360 Reality and my good friends at Mach 1. Um, You know, these tools are now available for prosumer creators, but don't be surprised in a year if people are going to, you know, people are going to be doing spatial audio TikToks or spatial audio, you know, Instagram stories or YouTube videos. That's where it's going. As an industry, is that um, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Or is it an inevitable thing? And uh, as as an industry, we should continue to to strive for innovation, research, and going deeper and improving things regardless of how things pan out on the consumer market. Uh, although probably more and more people being aware of spatial audio um, is a potentially a good thing because uh, it certainly influences the general situation in terms of uh, what people expect as a standard, as a minimum requirement when it comes to all kinds of technologies and services. And I guess it's a tide that raises all boats. Yeah, I mean, this is something that we've seen in video. We've seen it in audio. I mean, think about the progression of audio over the years. Uh, There's a book I recommend everybody should read called Perfecting Sound Forever. Uh, My good friends at Mach 1 Studio sent me this book and I read it and I was like blown away. Fantastic book of the history of audio from the Big Bang to the present. Mm -hmm. And the audio changes, you know, first it was monaural audio on a wax cylinder and everybody was blown away with the quality then it was stereo 
you know, then mono monoral audio on various formats of recording stuff. And fidelity got better and better and better. And then it's stereo, and then it was quad, and then quad went away, and then quad came back, and then you know, then it became 5.1 audio, and then it's 7.10. Now it's Dolby Atmos. And so these things progress, and that's a good thing because it's it's gives people the ability to reproduce experiences with more fidelity. And it used to be just fidelity from a frequency point of view, from a spectral point of view. And now it's fidelity from a spectral and a spatial point of view. And that's a good thing. It means that you can reproduce experiences more accurately and have more immersion and make it more real. And so spatial audio is part of this progression of approaching reality and approaching real immersion. And this is why you'll hear the word immersion in all of these different fields. It's really important to have a realistic experience because that is more human and it's more visceral and it's more impactful. Now, the downside of that is that you can take advantage of that experience to do bad things, you know, propaganda. (laughs) But the good side is that you can record art at a level of fidelity that transmits the intention of the artist. So those are the two sides of that coin. I just wanted to focus on the a few aspects that certainly were evidence to me personally in terms of spatial audio making its way into new verticals or even new industries altogether in the most recent months and like the last couple of years, like as, as I mentioned in my initial question. So for example, we, we typically associate spatial interactive audio with extended realities industry, you know, you, you know, virtual reality. It's kind of like a given is a standard somewhat. Um, whereas, for example, things like music industry, uh, podcasting, for example, hardware wearables that uh, I don't mean head mounted displays for VR. I mean, glasses and uh, phones, earbuds, etc. And maybe some categories of augmented reality that are not rendered on dedicated device, but maybe um, uh, on mobile phone. And also uh, several companies announcing services when it comes to improving or offering uh, personalized uh, head relate transfer functionality in order to improve their playback um, and user experience for their customers. So all these kind of new interesting events in the last couple of years kind of suggest that uh, a spatial audio as a whole did make a progress and uh, now more and more regular consumers are aware of it. They don't necessarily always understand what it means and it is a complicated subject there's so many formats, codecs, ways of delivering it, head track, static, can be easily confused. But nevertheless, um, the overall change is apparent. So I just want to ask your view on, do you see it the same way that um, spatial audio made its way into new areas of everyday consumer? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, the biggest piece of evidence there is that Apple released head tracking in their AirPods Pro. So there are 120 million AirPods Pro out there now that give people awareness of spatial audio. Now, that is a Trojan horse for their AR glasses. They're getting people used to the idea of wearing sensors on their bodies, which they've successfully done. And then Bose's recent announcement of a partnership with Qualcomm is another example of this, where Lila Snyder, the uh, CEO of Bose, who is um, doing a fantastic job of bringing them into the future, has announced a partnership with Qualcomm. Now, what's that about? 
That's about low latency LE audio and low latency sensor sensor management. And that, of course, as you know, plays very nicely into spatial audio. And so there are also examples, you know, you were, you were talking to Michael um, Plitkins from Spatial in your previous podcast, which is so funny. I mean, I, I know Michael, and he's doing some really interesting stuff in the physical world. So there's spatial audio is now expressed in the physical world, you know, with 5.1 and 7.1 systems and these mesh spatial audio networks that people like Spatial and Michael are working on. And then, of course, the wearables like earbuds and headphones with head tracking, all of these things are leading towards the same thing, which is this immersive experience. Now, don't be surprised if the out loud stuff and the wearable stuff start to work in concert to create even better experiences. Because what that allows for is audio that's close to your ears, these two holes, the most important points on your body, and then the physical world and being able to blend the experience from very close, very near with these near field wearables to these far field, you know, speakers, combining those two things will create the most, the next level of immersive experience. And so um, all the pieces are coming into place to do that. The processing power on wearables is there. The processing power on systems for rendering spatial audio out in the real world. And in the automotive industry too, look at all of the Dolby Atmos traction that's happened in the automotive industry. So that has two implications. The first implication is that you'll be able to have an incredibly immersive experience when those wearable devices and the out loud devices work together, which is happening. It also means that your audio canvas, where audio happens in your life, will be seamless from context to context. So I'm in my car listening to a spatial audio experience. Maybe there's a wearable involved there too. I step out of my car with the wearable on and that audio experience follows me into the house. And then my house takes over for the far field experience. And then I walk into a retail environment and the far field experience could be part of that context as well. So this is where all this stuff could head is this endless canvas of audio that follows you from context to context. It's a really interesting idea, and it's definitely something that people are thinking about and talking about and designing for. I also wanted to look at this whole situation from a slightly different angle. I'm personally very excited about this new energy. It feels like our industry has never been more exciting, multifaceted and vibrant, and kind of feels like the future is bright. Having said that, Certain individuals have expressed um, thoughts about maybe for various reasons, sometimes maybe for the fact that people just rush into things. I mean, individuals, organizations and large companies, sometimes companies trying to make things proprietary or kind of brand and label things so hard that then it sort of skews the perception and potentially impedes the this lovely evolution that we're experiencing in the moment. I just wanted to ask your opinion about, do you see any potential pitfalls and issues that we as a whole, as an industry, should be careful and uh, avoid or not become part of the problem almost? Well, this is, you know, coming back to the age-old problem of format wars. So Dolby 360, Dolby Atmos, etc. And then there are sort of open source formats like Mach 1 and other examples like that, Apple has really painted themselves in a corner with Dolby and Dolby's painted themselves in a corner because of their format is really 
comes from a channel-based world. When you create a Dolby Atmos mix, you actually have to print it to another device, essentially. It's really weird physical model, mental model that they're using for Dolby Atmos. Whereas, you know, it's a file-based workflow. Why do you need to print anything? Why not just export to whatever format you want? So that's the thing that that's really interesting right now is that people are companies like Dolby and Apple have really painted themselves in a corner by using old metaphors to express a new idea. You know, this channel-based audio idea, whereas what is happening is people are are doing object-based audio, endless number of objects in endless number of positions expressed in a way that can be rendered on hardware. So Dolby has done a lot of that work correctly. But, you know, if you look at their mixing environment, it's really painful to use and it's painful to the workflow is painful. And I know they're working to fix that. And there's a September 21st, 2022 article from Protocol titled, Google wants to take on Dolby with new open media formats. And so this is Google recognizing this problem and companies like Mach 1 recognizing this problem and creating workflows that are humane for creating spatial audio, delivering spatial audio, and transcoding spatial audio transcoding spatial audio to other formats because it's about portability and workflow. Dolby and Apple have this mindset of licensing. And so they're restrictive in their workflow. And it feels that way because it's really hard to use. Companies like Dolby and Mach 1 and others want to empower creators. And so they create formats that are open-ended, open source, and easy to use and transferable to other formats, knowing that, yeah, you will end up using Dolby Atmos as a delivery format, but it doesn't mean you necessarily want to mix in that format because of how restrictive and painful the workflow is. So that's that's what I'm seeing right now is this people responding to the the format war mentality of, oh, it's Dolby Atmos or it's Sony 360 or it's, you know, it's some licensable format. That's where things are going to get really interesting when the open source formats kind of find their way into the creative space people are going to recognize that they're not beholden to those restrictive formats and licensed formats because that's really what that's about. Dolby is about licensing Dolby. That's how they make money. And Apple has bought into that and in some ways painted themselves in a corner by by sticking with Dolby Atmos as a format. And I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are on that. It's a tough one. Yeah, it's a really tough one. Um I'm I'm trying to maintain this kind of um, position of being fly on a wall just purely for informational reason. I, I do want to be aware of all the developments because it um, translates in a very practical sense because I, I want to know about as many tools as possible that I can potentially have as part of my toolbox, which is useful for, for work. And uh, more often than not, pretty much uh, all projects or all kind of technical creative challenges require... A combination of tools, um, so it's not it's not always black and white. It's it, in fact it never is. You always come up with a solution, a number of steps that are essentially uh, made out of different tools, different formats. Potentially, sometimes uh, one project is deployed on multiple platforms. Therefore, you have to do it in, in different ways. But I guess th- those who work in the industry, they understand the differences. They understand the pitfalls and the issues with that. I'm kind of afraid. 
about the kind of the regular folk falling into these kind of false beliefs that, um, again, I don't, I don't want to mention any names because, you know, I don't, I don't want to be biased or in any shape or form, but I'm afraid that some consumers just uh, criticize, uh, say, maybe concept of spatial audio on a more fundamental level because they had um, less than optimal experience. And it leads to these kind of practical problems that we have to kind of deal with on a regular basis. These, we won't name names in this statement, but companies making choices that result either in a difficult creation experience for creating content or a, dis- a difficult consumption experience for consuming content. You know, Google's um, spatial audio project is called Project Caviar, and its focus mainly is on YouTube, from what I understand. And so that is, that I, I see that as a positive in that well, it'll expose people to spatial audio in a really broad platform like YouTube. Think this, this is now consumer creator space where they're going to make spatial audio useful in a consumer platform like YouTube. And so that's good for spatial audio from an awareness point of view, unless there's something about that experience that is less than perfect or maybe is creates a bad experience for people. And, you know, the same thing happened with 3D TV. Like in, in the early 2000s, 3D TV was a thing and everybody was going to have 3D TVs, but making content for it was really hard. And the content that people made was not that good. And so there just wasn't good content to consume with 3D TV. And so 3D TV failed as a platform for that reason. Now, I don't think we're going to have that problem with spatial audio because there are already 120 million AirPods Pro in the world and companies like Bose and Bang & Olufsen and others are are looking are you know obviously going to respond to spatial audio in that way. So I think that the scale of it is different and so there's there's less danger of it becoming a novelty because the stakes are relatively low for companies to do spatial audio. But we did see at the launch of spatial audio on on Apple Music some pretty negative effects because there were some not so ideal three uh, spatial audio mixes on iTunes on the Apple Music Store that gave spatial audio kind of a bad rap out of the gate. You remember that? Yeah. Definitely. People still talking about it. Um, there are there are a number of uh, projects, a number of platforms that are kind of are deemed by you know critical listeners and um, spatial audio professionals as uh, le- less than ideal, and it kind of uh, raises the question: who who's done it, what, and why they've done it. I definitely agree with you about the point of that spatial audio is by no means some kind of a gimmick. You know, people compare it to, I suppose, people compare VR to three D screens and whatnot and maybe spatial audio is often compared to quad and some other esoteric formats that kind of um came up and died very quickly i think you're absolutely right even before airports pro and these staggering figures that you mentioned 120 millions and the, the that number is rising i think overall the the penetration and usability of spatial audio as, as a as a fundamental concept across all kinds of plethora of instances was much more profound. Um, and we're still not sure that spatial audio is going to be absolute must and 
top quality in on every device in every situation but uh, it certainly has a potential to be that but uh, i definitely not, i can't imagine it being um obsolete uh, or becoming anything less than it is right now today so i'm i've made this prediction before and i'm going to make it again i think i even may have made this prediction in the last podcast i did with you but i've said this before and i'll say it here spatial audio as an augmented reality platform is going to be the sleeper success in the long run because this notion that people are going to wear VR headsets or AR headsets, yeah, it's going to happen, but it is so intrusive and has so much cognitive load on you know our our wetware, our brains, that I think that spatial audio is going to be the thing that actually works the best for augmented experiences. And I just I just intuitively think that this is going to be what plays out in the future. And the reason I say that is for a couple of reasons. One, look at the scale of spatial audio with head tracking right now in the world. There's no device in the world, augmented reality device in the world that is deployed at that scale. And there probably never will be something that's deployed at a greater scale than headphones and wearables. And when augmented reality becomes a thing and Apple releases, you know, their, whatever they're going to release and, and, you know, other companies release their augmented reality devices, there's going to be the hype cycle. It's going to be this big push. And then it'll be a, you know, the trough of disillusionment that, you know, we all know exists as a, as technologies roll out. But look what's happened with spatial audio. It's rolled out. And it wasn't like this crazy peak of, oh my God, it's going to be the next thing. It was just kind of like, oh, it's a thing. And now it's just a thing that you accept, which is really unusual for a rollout of a technology. Normally there's like, oh my God, VR is going to be the thing. Oh, wah, wah. Oh my God, 3D TV is going to be a thing. Wah, wah, sad trombones. Yeah. It just goes on and on like that. But the rollout of spatial audio was somehow different. I agree. It's just been steadily evolving. And uh, I 100% agree with you about this. You said like what's to come. In, in fact, in many ways, I kind of see the, the beginning of that trajectory already because, um, like I said, the industry has never been more vibrant in terms of almost on a weekly basis, I'm discovering new startups on hardware level and software level um, and examples of how this kind of spatial audio technology directly or indirectly being implemented in kind of most unexpected context. And that's all really exciting. Um, and spatial audio is is not a particular device, maybe. It's more of a fundamental concept. Spatial audio is something that it aims to emulate or simulate the way we navigate the, the world through one of our key senses. And the way we experience spatial audio happened to be through a, a couple of most successful pieces of technology that ever been created by, you know, humankind, internet, wearables, and, and mobile phones. And everybody has access to that type of technology. Um, it might be a slow internet, it might be uh, a cheaper pair of headphones, and it might be a, not, not the most expensive, most advanced mobile phone, but everybody has some kind of version of those technologies accessible to them everywhere in the world. And this is this is maybe why it just keeps happening and because perhaps it's a perfect storm. Well, it's also just a progression of technology. And it's, I think it, it amazes me that even in the world of, you know, of audio uh, companies who understand this stuff incredibly well, 
even even in those circles, people don't understand what's happening with immersive audio and and the application of it. Like the applications of it have not been fully realized. And part of it is workflow. You know, how hard is it to create, deliver, and render spatial audio? And it's getting easier. But the thing is, no one's focusing on that end and workflow for the creator economy. Like, so um, Medea Research, um, Mark Mulligan issues reports on this, and they've been saying for years now, the creator economy is going to dominate the entertainment industry. And I 100% buy into that thesis because it's been this very elite group of people, think elite creator, prosumer creator, consumer creator. There's been an elite, you know, the record industry has dominated the distribution of content and that's totally changing right now. And so that on the distribution side has implications that we all see, you know, the record industry is having changes, but the thing that people are not paying attention to is the creator side of that equation, the workflow side of that equation. There's so much opportunity. So if someone creates the perfect spatial audio workflow, I actually tried to do this <laughs> and, you know, with, with very limited success, but like if someone creates the perfect spatial audio workflow for creation, distribution, and rendering of spatial audio that has meaning in the world for users, for, for people, you know, think geospatial audio, like geocaching of spatial audio, things like that. And people have tried to do this in lots of different ways. Bose tried to do it in in different ways. But whoever cracks that nut is going to be very successful because I think that is a killer app that is just has not yet been tapped. Yeah, potentially it's it's hard to kind of imagine because there's so many options. A big part of uh, our profession is ability to stay informed and be able to navigate this fragmented world of tools and formats and be able to put together solutions that deliver compelling experiences to their end user. And that's kind of where the, you know, the engineering part comes in. And uh, I agree with you, there will be um, opportunities taken by different individuals and companies that will provide solutions and bridge those gaps successfully by making everybody's lives easier. Also, I wanted to go back a little bit to the consumer side of things and look at how augmenting, no pun intended, their perception about spatial audio can actually feedback our industry in a positive way. Things like setting up a benchmark of what is spatial audio in a more defined, clearer fashion, but also not just in terms of the branding and naming, but also in terms of the the quality, because as you know, there are many ways how you can deliver spatial audio in terms of quality and even the way it functions uh, on different platforms. So that would be an important aspect to me personally. And um, also reflecting the quality of the kind of experience, because as we know, Spatial audio is requires kind of more complex workflows. It's more time consuming. You need to have more stuff and you need to do more things and on kind of recording side of things, but also in post-production, also deployment is more complicated. So all of, all of that equates more human hours, more more technology resources, which, which means it, it requires more funding. So do we get uh, rewarded accordingly because we're providing a higher, uh, more enhanced experience to the consumer, be it 
films, music, perhaps there could be or should be different subscription tiers where if you experience this album or whatnot in the higher spatial audio resolution or spatial to begin with compared to not, maybe there's some kind of uh, difference in fees because I feel like this area that has been very gray and even even companies that have been in the business for, for many years still haven't figured out that business model for themselves. But there's also uh, other practical things how we can push uh, that message to the consumer. For example, we, c- uh, we can talk about personalized HRTF um, and a number of companies already doing that. They're utilizing it in order to provide, again, better listening experience for the end user. How many people out there even understand what it means or maybe they do have access to it but they're not willing to use it because it's too weird or maybe it costs some money to do that. We, we know that that can yield potential uh, incremental Im- improvement when it comes to binaural rendering but also we can look at things like a bit more actually in fact nothing to do with spatial audio but maybe it could provide an enhancement in conjunction with personalized HRTF. Um, things such as audiometry where we can tap into uh, using very same technology that sits in our pockets on our mobile devices and uh, do kind of quick examination of our hearing frequency response and implement frequency adjustments on the playback pipeline to basically fill the gaps and deficiencies that um, each an individual person has. You know, we, we all have issues with our health. A lot of people wear glasses, including yourself, Matt. And uh, I know that I have a 3 dB dip around 3K in my left ear since 10 years ago and uh, because I, I, I do regular hearing checks. And we all have these imperfections. Maybe looking at those kind of more simplistic aspects, we can improve the listening experience. Once it's all combined, perhaps people will start paying attention because the, when you compare A to B, there's a noticeable difference and maybe you give people a clear reason why choose option A versus option B. So both Bose and Apple are measuring the ear now in their headphones, in their in-ear headphones, and they're measuring the ear to adjust the noise cancelling, to optimize noise cancelling and to optimize the listening experience. And it's it's a step beyond HRTF measurement, you know, measuring the physical ear. Um the good news is that we know what all those measurements are. It's just figuring out how to do it consistently through wearables. And so that's happening. That's happening at Apple. It's happening at Bose. It's happening at other companies, I'm sure. And all of these technical machinations have a specific goal, which is to improve the listening experience for the customer. So it's a very customer-centric view, which is the correct way to approach it. It also lends to non non-audio or non-entertainment applications. You mentioned a couple there, which is measuring hearing loss over time. So the thing that we can do with an Apple Watch and with headphones and with other wearables is that we can measure the performance of your body over time and see if there are things that need intervention, whether it be, you know, measuring your heart rate and noticing that your, you know, your heart efficiency is diminishing somehow or measuring your hearing and noticing that your hearing is diminishing over time. So all of these things serve the purpose of improving some human situation. And that's really kind of the key to doing any of this thing profitably is doing things that people care about and have meaning to them. And so in the in the context of spatial audio, creating better experiences for people has meaning for companies that are interested in selling music or podcasts or any other kind of content. And what was interesting when Apple released AirPods Pro and the spatial audio is that they actually 
cut off their competition at the knees because they announced, oh, spatial audio in this high definition audio is going to be no additional cost to customers. I can tell you from experience and knowledge that companies like Spotify and Amazon and um, Tidal and companies that were banking on additional revenue from higher tier audio quality had their knees cut off when Apple made that announcement. Yeah, And so that was almost like a monopoly, you know, that's almost legally offensive what they did there. But to your point, you know, that that's what people are banking on is being able to monetize these additional benefits. And the question is, can a creator get paid more for creating a spatial audio mix? Probably, um, especially if you, you know, if you, if you're smart enough to charge an hourly rate and it takes you longer. So as a creator, maybe you're covered in that sense. As an artist, can an artist make more money with that? Maybe, you know, coming back to this notion of the creator economy and cutting out the middleman, you know, the record companies, maybe creators can make more money by cutting out the middleman and not being subjected to, you know, the the very low compensation fees that Spotify and other platforms offer artists. So in that sense, maybe that, you know, there is a future for that. And, you know, I'm working with a couple of companies right now that are working on that concept of artist enablement. And so as things go from elite creator to prosumer creator to consumer creator, maybe when you tip over to that consumer creator space, that's when the creator economy takes off and artists get compensated for their work appropriately because they're the ones creating, distributing, and profiting from the creation of content. It doesn't cost more money to provide content in high resolution, except servers, because it's more data, more servers, especially in our age where climate change is a, such a hot topic. Um, so there is a certain cost to it, maybe very marginal. So maybe that's a separate discussion. But I think creating content with spatial audio is a different approach, especially when it comes to music. If you speak to any mixing engineer, producer, an artist, it's a very different mindset when it comes to crafting something in stereo versus crafting something binaurally versus crafting something maybe uh, with ambisonics as well as headlocked audio that then you render binaurally real time. So there's definitely difference there. And perhaps that's where the argument arises in terms of um, should there be an additional fee if you subscribe to Apple Music for $9.99 a month, you eat as much as you can. But if you want Dolby Atmos content enabled, uh, that would be $12.99. Seems like a logical progression there, but and which would hopefully pass on to the content creators, but then you just mentioned yourself that usually doesn't, uh, all those kind of improvements in the tier pricing typically don't trickle down to the artist. It, it gets uh, distributed among the, the middleman, the, the, the technology platform, record labels and so on, Is and, and we're kind of back to square one. That's a whole whole new issue altogether. It's maybe a music industry podcast and not spatial audio. But, uh, you know, maybe on this occasion we can indulge ourselves and because the topics that somewhat not related directly to spatial audio, to kind of what we're interested in, somehow do have an accumulative effect over time, nevertheless. So it's it's worth bearing in mind such things. Yeah, I think so. And And this is the value that you extract from a service changes over time. It's it's a skills like mixing spatial audio have a shelf life. Skills like editing video have a shelf life because technology goes from these different phases to become easier and easier to 
do. So it's, and it's all about workflow, the workflow as the workflow becomes easier, the value that you can extract from that workflow as a service provider diminishes. That's just a fact of life. And the same is true with any other service. But I will say that there is, interestingly, the value that doesn't seem to diminish over time is the level of artistry that you can exert on a creative endeavor if you have the discipline to be really, really good at something. So as a spatial audio mixer, it doesn't matter how easy it gets, just in the same way that just because desktop publishing exists, that doesn't mean that better design exists. It just means that more people can pretend to design. <laughs> and so I think that's true with spatial audio as well. You know, like uh, you're a very uh, well-regarded spatial audio engineer. Drajan Bozenjak at Mach 1 is a very highly regarded spatial audio engineer. There are a lot of people who you can name. You can name names of people who they're just at another level of, of the art. And so there's a clear separation between the art, the act of doing something really, really well, and the ability to do something at all, you know, the tools. And so I think, thank goodness, there is nuance in art in all of this, because people who are really good at it can continue to make a living doing it because of their discipline. Now, that's not to say that it doesn't become more challenging over time, but I think that the fact that in any pursuit, whether it be video editing or desktop publishing or, you know, design or spatial audio mixing, there is thankfully art. And that makes it possible for people to be at a high tier of that art. So I don't know how that stacks up to your question there, but. I think it definitely does. And then also the whole conversation about AI and how a composers or mastering engineers or or restoration engineers get paid for after being in, in in the profession for such a long time, it's definitely having an impact on people. But like you said, there's always a nuance if you kind of do all the right things in terms of continuing educating yourself and staying ahead of the curve, or not ahead of the curve, but on the edge of the curve in terms of the what's out there, you will uh, maintain your your skills and your experience, you know, to the point where you remain employable, you know, you don't fall behind. But audio industry is not exception, you know, all industries see that, but somehow we always find a way. But that's a topic for another day, I suppose. And as we're wrapping up, Matt, I just wanted to get your conclusion slash summary on the whole thing we just discussed. Till we open the the next chapter, next page, what, what kind of key takeaways, key thoughts we, we should be staying with for the time being. I'm talking about technology, markets, roadmaps, future trends, issues, potentials. Before we put the comma, what should we say at this point? Um, well, I'll maybe leave with this closing thought. This is a really great time to be an audio engineer. It's a really great time to be someone who cares about audio and storytelling with audio because the tools have never been more accessible and usable and effective. I mean, really effective. And up until maybe five years ago, the audio engineering was sort of in the domain of content in the creation of content. And now it's kind of jumped to another tier where it's now about experience because the hardware that renders it is taking a, an active, literally an active role in in the experience because you know you have head tracking in headphones 
and you have companies like Spatial doing really interesting things with out loud audio. So both out loud audio and wearable audio, audio that's in your ears, both have this dynamic component that's being added to it. With Spatial, you have this component of the environment changes. It's not, it's not a static linear mix. It changes based on where you are in space and what you do. And with headphones and wearables, the mix changes based on where your head is turning. So that's like, that's the big takeaway is that the, the physical environment is influencing the quality and characteristics of the audio experience, which is a new thing in the last couple of years. Where it goes in the future is what's really exciting because then you can take advantage of this mixing of the physical world and the content world and translate that into useful human experiences through immersive audio. And and that's kind of my, that's my big takeaway here. Again, I, I must say I completely agree with you. And then I think that's a really, really good thought to end with. But not before I ask you my favorite question, and you're full of wisdom. So I'd like to ask you, what can you share with our audience? Any piece of advice or tip that really helped you in your career, in your journey? And I must say what you said last time really stayed with me. So I'm hoping for another hit. Um, yeah. So my, my current piece of advice is really for younger creators. I think what I probably said the last time was something to the effect of make lots of mistakes and learn things. And I'll, I'll maybe add some color to that, which is Things are changing so fast right now. You have to be comfortable with the uncertainty of it all to be successful and also to be, to make progress in your pursuits. And so, um, being good at something that no one else understands is, is a good way to be successful as a creator. Being comfortable with uncertainty is a good way to progress and learn as a creator. And being comfortable with making mistakes is also a really great trait because in this economy where AI is taking over things and um, technology is making it harder to be unique, I think the thing that is going to persist and be out of reach of AI is this notion of real human creativity and unpredictability. And so nurturing that in yourself, I think, is a really great way to stay competitive in a world that is filled with automation. And I think this is something that Elon Musk has said at some point, which is the creative genius that you may have and that you cultivate will be your differentiator in the future economy. So that's my that's my nugget for today. Again, uh, I sound like a broken record. I 100% agree with you. And you put it so nicely. And uh, I think intuitively people understand this notion in general and they, they feel it in the modern world. Having it kind of synthesized in a very clear sentence or two and just to kind of keep it as one of your mental tools in the box is very important because um, it's a filter that you shape your actions through. Matt, it's been great fun and pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to show your support, please consider becoming a Patreon. Not only are you supporting us, but you will also get special access to bonus content and much more. Find out more on our official Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash Immersive Audio Podcast. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast. 
hosted by Oliver Cadell and Monica Bowles. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott. Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit immersiveaudiopodcast.com to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.